Major funding for NJ Spotlight News is provided in part by NJM Insurance Group, serving the insurance needs of residents and businesses for more than 100 years, and by the PSCG Foundation. Tonight on NJ Spotlight News, fears the Israel-Hamas war is escalating into a wider regional conflict, what it means for further U.S. involvement. So the U.S. is unlikely to respond directly against Hezbollah, although Israel might. The U.S. has already begun to respond to extremist groups in the region in different ways. And growing tensions in the Middle East lead to safety concerns here in New Jersey. One town cancels its Palestinian flag-raising ceremony. This would have been the first um, official act on the part of the local government to acknowledge the humanity of the Palestinian people that live here. Plus, renewed calls for the senior senator's expulsion, while our new Washington, D.C. correspondent digs into co-defendant Fred Davies' Jersey campaign donations. He's given to New Jersey politicians, particularly in the northern half of the state, since then, more than a quarter of a million dollars. And get your shovels out. A major winter storm is set to slam the Northeast this weekend, up to 10 inches in some parts of our state. Um, it's going to be a heavy snow, which is concerns for trees and power lines and such. NJ Spotlight News begins right now. From NJ PBS Studios, this is NJ Spotlight News with Brianna Venozzi. Good evening and thanks for joining us on this Friday night. I'm Brianna Venozzi. U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken is back in the Middle East for a week-long trip through several countries amid fears a full-scale war could erupt in the region. Those anxieties were recently heightened by a suspected Israeli strike on a Hamas leader in Lebanon, twin bombings in Iran, and no end in sight to Israel's war in Gaza, where Israel's military says it struck more than 100 targets across Gaza overnight as it intensifies operations in central and southern parts of the Strip. But as many Middle East experts point out, each recent conflict is interconnected and shows the tensions are at a boiling point. So far, the U.S. has held back from using direct military retaliation over worries a broader regional conflict could have dire political and economic consequences. But are we on the brink of one anyway? I'm joined now by Dr. Michael Boyle. He's an associate professor of political science at Rutgers University. Dr. Michael Boyle, thanks so much for coming back on the show. Uh, the U.S. is engaged, obviously, in this renewed diplomatic push by being in the Middle East right now. How, what are the chances of this conflict escalating to a more regional war? Fairly substantial. The U.S. has actually come out this morning and said they think the risks are very real. And in part, the reason the risks are very real is that we've started to see increasing cross-border tensions uh, on the southern border with Lebanon and the northern border with Israel. And we're seeing, there's been a long time where Hezbollah has been essentially shelling the border towns of northern Israel. We've seen in the last week, Israel has struck within Beirut to kill Hamas operatives that they thought were responsible for the October 7th attack. And that puts Hezbollah in a position of, well, do they escalate the attacks along the border? And do they start to conduct deeper attacks into Israel itself? 
If that happens, the Israeli government has said that they will then respond with force. So I think what's going on is the U.S. is attempting to make sure that the responses are calibrated. In other words, that Israel doesn't go too far in its response to Hezbollah's provocations, and that whoever in the region is talking to Hezbollah can try and convince Hezbollah not to go so far to provoke Israel. Well, and in I fact, leaders from Hezbollah didn't mince words that there will be retribution for that attack in Beirut. So at what point does the U.S. respond militarily? It seems like these extremist groups are walking right up to the line. So the U.S. is unlikely to respond directly against Hezbollah, although Israel might. The U.S. has already begun to respond to extremist groups in the region in different ways. If you looked in the last week, U.S. forces uh, actually attacked a series of Houthi boats um, that were attacking U.S. naval forces. We've also conducted a series of strikes in Iraq, enraging the Iraqi government. And part of the reason that's happened is that there is a network of armed groups, largely coordinated by Iran, but not entirely directed by Iran, that links Hezbollah, as well as the Houthis, as well as a series of Iranian-backed groups in Iraq. So the U.S. has already started responding in a kind of limited way to both Houthi attacks on U.S. forces and to attacks on U.S. forces in Iraq. And that's important because the Biden administration is coming under pressure not to simply just sit there as these groups attack them. So I would expect escalation from the U.S. point of view to go along in those theaters, but probably not directly against Hezbollah. Against Hezbollah and Lebanon, the concern is really whether that will sort of pop off between Israel and Hezbollah itself. Not to mention it's an election year for the U.S., uh, so there's that interest. Uh, so let me ask you then, is there a national interest for the major parties, uh, regional powers really in the Middle East, to engage in some type of uh, broader conflict? You mentioned Iran. Uh, they are integral in a lot of these militant groups. Is it even avoidable at this point? It is avoidable. I mean, Iran normally calibrates its use of violence against its enemies, whether that would be the United States, whether that would be Israel, in a way designed essentially to harass them, but not to provoke to the point that it invites a response against Iran. And that's in part because what's at play here really is nuclear weapons. And that's the concern here, right? That Israel has nuclear weapons, that Iran is developing nuclear weapons. That usually puts a kind of cap on how far they're willing to go. That said, there's a real chance of miscalculation. So Iran might think that sponsoring militant group attacks on either on Israel or the United States kind of walks up to a line but doesn't cross it. But that doesn't guarantee that the line itself is not actually crossed. So me, there's a real risk of escalation here as a result of that. Well, let me ask you in the time that we have remaining about this uh, long-term peace plan that uh, Benjamin Netanyahu has laid out um, and whether or not the U.S. has the tolerance for something of this extent. So the, the plan that was put forward by the Israeli government is in part a response to the Biden administration saying, tell us what your plan is for the day afterwards. The problem is what Israel has tabled does not square with what the United States has argued. What Israel has tabled is a situation under which Palestinians will be in charge of Gaza, but there'll be some unspecified multinational force. Egypt will play some sort of role. Israel will still have security responsibility. And essentially, there'll be no role for the Palestinian Authority. And the Biden administration has been very clear that the only legitimate body that they see running Gaza after the war ends is the Palestinian Authority. And I think that's the root of the conflict at the moment between the United States and Israel, is an understanding of, okay, who is running this the day after? So it's very good that there's a plan on the table, but I don't think that plan is acceptable to the United States. And I think this is where you're going to start to see more hard conversations between the United States and Israel about what this looks like when the war ends. Mm. Dr. Michael Boyle is an associate professor of political science at Rutgers University. Thank you so much. Thank you.
The strain of the Middle East conflict is being felt thousands of miles from the war, including right here in New Jersey, where many communities are starkly divided over the ongoing bloodshed. In West Orange, fuel was added to the fire after the mayor scrapped a Palestinian flag-raising event scheduled for today, saying in a statement the event got canceled to prioritize the town's safety. But as senior correspondent Joanna Gagas reports, critics are questioning whether that's the truth. We had a great opportunity here with the mayor to work with her and to have her really sponsor and champion for people who have been silenced and really create an environment where all people can be heard and really give people a glimpse into Palestinian culture in a safe, peaceful, celebratory way. Members of the group West Orange for Humanity were deeply disappointed to learn last week that a Palestinian flag raising ceremony scheduled by the township for today was later canceled by West Orange Mayor Susan McCarthy. This would have been the first um, official act on the part of the local government to acknowledge the humanity of the Palestinian people that live here and call West Orange home and are suffering and are hurting as a result of what's going on halfway around the world. City Council President Bill Rutherford says the municipality has rightly supported its Jewish community with an Israeli flag raising ceremony, among other things. And given the heightened tension Rutherford feels in the township right now, he opposed the mayor's decision to cancel the Palestinian flag raising. To cancel that or postpone that just, I thought, sent the wrong signal to them in particular. It does not acknowledge their uh, importance to the community, their participation in the community, and the fact that they should enjoy the same rights and privileges as everyone else. The mayor issued a statement regarding her decision saying, while the decision brings deep disappointment, it is driven by a commitment to prioritize the safety of the broader community. But organizers of the event are crying foul because the mayor first approved the event, issued a permit, reviewed their announcement, and publicized it. Members of the Jewish community pushed back on language that was used in the promotional flyer that said, Palestinian joy is resistance, saying it was anti-Semitic and hateful. The flyer was then removed from the township's electronic signage. A small group of political activists tried to make a blatantly pro-terrorism and anti-peace statement. And they lied and they deflected and they misled about their intent. And their intent was very clear in their own words. They wrote in their flyers and their posters and they said that this was intended to celebrate, quote, the joy of resistance. And this is coded language here. Resistance means armed struggle. Rula Ramadan is a Palestinian and a lifelong resident of West Orange who denounces that perspective. We stand against anti-Semitism, anti-Muslim, anti-Arab Arab speech across the board. Um, the language was not hateful in any sense. Uh, but what sadly I believed happened is that, you know, people fell into the anti-Muslim, anti-Arab trope or the belief that, um, you know, Palestinian existence or Palestinians resisting their mourning, their pain, their grief at what is happening to their community somehow insinuates something against anybody else. Tova Fry is a Jewish resident who supports raising the Palestinian flag. I am Jewish. Um, all of my grandparents were killed uh, in the uh, Holocaust uh, and I was born in occupied Palestine uh, after the war. 
criticizing any government, our own or any other, for their actions is not anti-Semitic. The Palestinian community did still gather in front of Town Hall today, although there was no official flag raised. They're hopeful that Mayor McCartney reconsiders her decision. In West Orange, I'm Joanna Gagas, NJ Spotlight News. It's a new year with the same old problems for U.S. Senator Bob Menendez. Pennsylvania Senator John Fetterman is re-upping his demand for Congress to remove Menendez from his seat. The latest calls for expulsion come on the heels of another superseding indictment against the senior senator, now accused of accepting bribes and a $24,000 watch to benefit Cutter. Fetterman this week posted on X, formerly Twitter, that Menendez is now accused of acting as a foreign agent for two nations, that's Qatar and Egypt. Menendez has pleaded not guilty to the charges, but prosecutors argue he allegedly introduced his developer friend and co-defendant Fred Davies to high-ranking officials in both countries, enabling both men to profit from the relationships. Now, long before Davies was charged with federal bribery and corruption, he was a well-known entity among New Jersey political circles, donating heavily not just to Menendez, but several other prominent elected officials in the state. Our new Washington, D.C. correspondent Ben Hulak followed the money trail and shares what he found. Ben Hulak, first of all, welcome to the team and welcome uh, to the show. So you followed the money trail here. What specifically did you find about the donations that Fred Davies has been making, not just recently, but over a span of years to politicians, including Senator Menendez? Right, Mr. Davies has been a longtime political player and his donations started at least at the federal level, which was really the focus of my reporting in 1989. Uh, he's given to New Jersey politicians, particularly in the Northern half of the state, since then, more than a quarter of a million dollars, uh, 270,000 roughly. And um, really anyone from Bill Bradley all the way to the present day. Um, and uh, also has given pretty heavily to the Democratic National Committee and the Democratic Senatorial Campaign Committee, which is the arm of the Democratic Party that raises money for Senate candidates. And um, I laid this out in, in better detail in the story online. I mean, were there frequent flyers? So were there specific uh, members of, of Congress, federal politicians who Davies devoted a lot of these funds to? Yes. Uh, Congressman Pascrell received, I think, about $18,000. And um, some other sitting members, uh, Bonnie Watson Coleman and Mikey Sherrill, also received money. And they've been quick to distance themselves from that money. They have uh, returned it. They've said they've returned it. I need to follow up on that in, in a later story. The strongest connection is with Menendez. And as I point out also in my piece, he's received campaign donations back uh, into several decades. Yeah, um, so bring that back home for me because certainly there's no crime in donating to political campaigns, but it's also not supposed to be transactional. Do these donations tell us anything at all about whether they were, whether there was perhaps bribery involved? I would not uh, say that. Uh, the federal prosecutors in New York have, have obviously made the accusations of bribery. It establishes a trail. It establishes a pattern, certainly, of uh, connection between Davies 
and Menendez. You've got a number of folks who have received donations. There are obviously accusations now involving not just Egypt, but also Qatar and Senator Menendez's involvement there. The fact that Fred Davies was um, in on some of these meetings with officials from there. I mean, above all, does it just look fishy? I, again, I'm not, I'm not going to speculate, Brianna, but um, it will be fascinating to watch the timeline until May when the senator is scheduled to appear at trial in New York City. Uh, it establishes uh, serious linkage, linkages between the two men. Um, I'm, I'm fascinated to hear what uh, happens next, obviously, as the chair of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, a post from which Menendez has stepped down since these uh, charges were laid against him. Uh, he has significant power, and it's not unusual for someone in that position to meet with foreign leaders. Uh, what is unusual and what the federal prosecutors are saying constitutes a breach of of federal law is uh, meeting and and using your position of power for your own benefit and to benefit those around you. So that's the distinction. Members of Congress meet with foreign leaders frequently, especially if they're on committees with that sort of jurisdiction. The federal folks are saying Menendez went farther than that and was looking out for folks in his own orbit. And you can, of course, read Ben's full story on our website. Ben Hulock is our new Washington, D.C. correspondent. Good to have you on the show, Ben. Pleasure to be here. Thanks. New Jersey leaders aren't done swinging in the fight over the state's last remaining immigrant detention center. Attorney General Matt Placken has appealed a federal judge's decision allowing the center in Elizabeth to remain open. CoreCivic, which operates the facility, argued New Jersey's law banning private detention centers from contracts with ICE violated federal law. But in a court filing Wednesday, the attorney general argued nothing in state law is stopping ICE from operating its own facility or even buying and operating the detention center in Elizabeth itself. According to ICE, Immigration and Customs Enforcement, there are 247 detainees at the Elizabeth Center as of today. The initial ruling has deepened the split among U.S. courts over the validity of state bans on immigrant detention. A massive four-alarm fire is burning in Elizabeth today at the former Singer Sewing Machine Factory. The site, which is just south of Newark Airport, is a 1.4 million square foot building that's been converted into office and storage space. The fire was first reported at 5.30 a.m. More than 100 firefighters responded to the blaze. City officials say it's now under control, but it's likely to burn for hours, if not days. Smoke from the fire could be seen for miles, even showing up on weather radars. That smoke and ash was being carried east across Newark Bay, so residents of Bayonne and Staten Island, they were advised to keep their windows closed as a precaution. The Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. School in Elizabeth is on the same street as the fire. That school was closed on Friday. State environmental authorities say there's no sign that hazardous materials are being burned in the fire and air quality monitoring is in place.
In our Spotlight on Business report, a last-minute bill to ease restrictions on breweries in the state could soon be headed for the governor's signature. Lawmakers and brewery owners appear to be on the same page with the new guidelines outlined in the measure, which has been a pain point for the industry. But even as the compromise bill moves forward, some worry without liquor license reform, it falls short of what Governor Murphy's requested. Ted Goldberg reports. With a brewery bill on the fast track for passage in Trenton, New Jersey's breweries smell like hops and optimism. We really are confident that this one is going to get uh, passed by both houses of the assembly and it's going to be signed by the governor. Tim Hewitt is the head brewer of Wet Ticket Brewing in Rahway. He says life will be much easier if Trenton passes a bill that would ease regulations on breweries. Hewitt previously told us about the concerns of being forced by law to give a tour to every paying customer when we spoke last year. Now we potentially are paying a $2,500 fine. That's $2,500 that's not going to employee salaries, you know, raw materials. That was actually uh, settled rather amicably with the ABC, who I think through all these regulations, they have also been put in a somewhat difficult uh, situation. Hewitt likes giving tours when customers ask for them, and time allows. I think it's a great opportunity to talk to our customers and sell what we're about. Uh, you know, unfortunately, you know, sometimes it gets pretty busy in here. The fact that we can miss one of these tours and be potentially fine like we were, um, you know, it's, it's just kind of unsettling. I think this is a game changer uh, for not just our brewery uh, industry, but also for modernizing New Jersey's archaic liquor laws. Senator Troy Singleton is a sponsor on the bill which also removes caps on the number of events breweries can host and allows breweries to coordinate with food trucks. And as part of a compromise with the governor's office, it also adds in measures that are aimed at getting more liquor licenses into the market. What we've done is tried to thread a pretty uh, unique needle here in the state of New Jersey, and I think we've done a pretty good job of doing that. I haven't heard a lot of naysayers tell us that this is a wrong approach. It is 100% of what we were looking for in our previous legislation. Eric Orlando leads the Brewers Guild of New Jersey. While he's happy to see this bill get a hearing yesterday, he wasn't thrilled to see breweries become a bargaining chip. We got to the situation because of restrictions that were put in place by this administration. Um, we also sent the governor a bill back in June that would have taken care of this six months ago. But here we are, right? And, you know, we're, we're happy to support a bill that once again is going to, you know, fix the restrictions on breweries in the state. What is proposed here is a minimal win at best. Courtney Mercer leads the nonprofit downtown New Jersey and likes parts of the bill. She says the changes for breweries are terrific, but she's not optimistic that the bill will successfully move around inactive licenses for restaurants the way it's supposed to. In the bill, it says that if a license does transfer, it has to be bought at kind of the prevailing rate of the last three licenses. The last three licenses sold at, you know, between a half a million and a million dollars. This license will have to be sold between a half a million and a million dollars. So we're still not hitting affordability. The bill gives inactive license holders two years to sell before licenses expire. And municipalities can sell them to neighboring municipalities. Mercer says that's an improvement over the old use it or lose it method, which was rarely enforced. If the municipality tells them you got to lose it or you lose it, and they have more licenses than their population cap allows, the municipality also loses that license. So they're never going to enforce that. The bill also carves out new licenses for restaurants attached to malls. Trenton has until Tuesday at noon to pass the bill and get it to the governor's desk to be signed.
In Rahway, I'm Ted Goldberg, NJ Spotlight News. December capped off a healthy year of hiring in the U.S. Last month's job report shows employers added 216,000 new positions, while the unemployment rate held steady at 3.7 percent, which was much better than economists expected. Here's how the markets reacted to the news. Tune in this weekend to NJ Business Beat with Raven Santana. She focuses on your financial health in the new year. From getting a hold of your debt to building your savings now and for retirement. Watch it Saturday at 5 p.m. and Sunday morning at 9.30 a.m. on NJPBS. The first major snowstorm in roughly two years is set to hit the state this weekend, although forecasters still aren't entirely sure how it'll play out. The northwest area of the state, where elevations are highest, is expected to get walloped, though, with up to a foot of snow possible. But much of it could be mixed with sleet, making it a heavy, wet powder that raises concern for taking down tree limbs and power lines. Over toward the 95 corridor, forecasters believe it'll be a wintry mix of rain, sleet, and snow, with a couple of inches possible there. The concern, of course, is with the impact on the roads. East of the 95 corridor, heading to the shore, will likely be a cold, rain event. The winter storm watch is in effect for Saturday morning through Sunday morning for most of North Jersey and the National Weather Service is warning against travel. The storm comes after the region and a large chunk of the U.S. recorded the warmest December on record. But New Jersey State climatologist Dave Robinson says there's still more to come. Believe it or not, it's just a prelude to a, a warm big storm come Tuesday, Wednesday next week. So those who get snow out of this storm, take advantage of building that snowman and getting out on your cross-country skis quickly because it's likely to be all washed away with the next storm, which is going to take a very different track, a track that will bring in a large amount of warm air, some very strong winds, and some very heavy rains. And that's going to do it for us tonight. But don't forget to download the NJ Spotlight News podcast so you can listen anytime. I'm Brianna Venozzi for the entire NJ Spotlight News team. Thanks for being with us. Have a great weekend. We'll see you right back here on Monday. New Jersey Education Association, making public schools great for every child. And RWJ Barnabas Health. Let's be healthy together. Our future relies on more than clean energy. Our future relies on empowered communities, the health and safety of our families and neighbors, of our schools and streets. The PSEG Foundation is committed to sustainability, equity, and economic empowerment. Investing in parks, helping towns go green, supporting civic centers, scholarships, and workforce development that strengthen our community.